動でお風呂を沸かします Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter Murray, Anna Tashinsky, and James Harkin. Now, once again, <laughs> we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, that is Anna. My fact this week is that it's a common misconception that face mites don't have an anus. <laughs> How common? Oh, well, oh. I, I know that I've blown it wide open for all of you guys oh, and everyone disgusting. listening. <laughs> if I, honestly, if I had a quid for every time I'd heard someone on the bus saying, you know, that face mites don't have an anus, <laughs> know, right? it's exhausting. So we did think they were anusless for a long time. We did think they, they were. So um, And also, sorry, face mites. What are oh, they? Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Explain. I suppose I better start from the beginning of this story. Um, so face mites are something that almost everyone with. Um, if you've got a face you've got the mites probably about 90% of people Um, and they're very small about um, between one tenth and one third of a millimetre and so you can't really see them and they're living sort of like inside your pores in the daytime so you couldn't see them anyway Um, but there's been this thing and honestly if you look up face mites and you do a um, website search of new scientists of National Geographic Mm. very reputable sources they all say interesting thing is they don't have an anus and so what they do is they store all their fecal waste in their bodies until they reach death which does only happen after a few days um and then they just explode it all out and Mm. this is why they're bad for you because they explode feces on your face now this isn't true and what's more we've kind of known this isn't true since the 60s so there was an electron (laughs) microscope in the 60s that did identify a face my anus but no one, <laughs> no one believed no one really him believed or her. It. That's <laughs> amazing. I wonder, would you rather have face mites on your face that had an anus mm. and were constantly pooing on your face mm. or one that only pooed as a one-off at the end of its life? Well, th- I think there was an idea, sorry, that um, it was it's worse to have them storing up all the poo because this is where a lot of the bad uh, rep of the face mite comes from. People will put various skin diseases down to face mite yeah. infestations. Oh, really? And it's partly because they'd say, oh, do you know they build up with poo so much poo and then it explodes everywhere mm-hmm. and it's not true and actually we don't really have evidence that they do any harm to us at all no. yeah although i found one thing that they might be doing to us so they've got no protection from ultraviolet light which is why they have to hide inside mm-hmm. the pores mm-hmm. and they can't produce melanin which is related to you know tanning and so on but they do have the ability to eat our melanin so humans oh. grin secretes melanin and then they gobble it up that's good so basically oh. they get a suntan through eating as yeah. opposed to through sunbathing. Exactly. That's oh, exactly what they that's do. Great. Imagine eating, if we could do that. Like eating... a biscuit that tanned us. <laughs> <laughs> they're eating our suntans. Don't you find that? Oh, they're eating that's away annoying. our suntans. I think yeah. they're eating our suntans. That's so interesting. And they're using our suntans to fuel all night sex sessions on our faces. <laughs> I know. This is the most amazing This sounds amazing like a Tory fact. party expose. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask about this massive poo? Is it like fake tan coming oh, onto God. your face? Because oh, yeah. <laughs> it's what they've eaten, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> There is no massive poo. It's oh, all small poo. Sorry. It's all small poo. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just quickly mention something you dropped in a second ago, which is the fact that every night when we go to bed, 
they crawl out of our little paws and they have a big old sex party on our clothes. Yeah. <laughs> and this is happening every night on our children, on on our grandparents. <laughs> it's happening everywhere. It's quite a cool idea because nighttime is when humans often have sex. So the idea that when you're having sex, it's likely that loads of face mites are also having sex. <gasps> oh, so they're not even waiting you. for you to sleep. They're, it's just nighttime. I think it's just darkness. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, they don't. Away from the UV, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. right. But also they find that couples pass each other's mites. So while know. you're having sex, you might pass a mite that's now having sex with another you mite. I think that's quite unlike unusual for you to pass your mites yeah. onto another person, actually. Yeah, oh, I yeah. think babies normally get them from their mothers. Yes, from breastfeeding. Do, uh, yeah. And I think any other way of me giving you one of my mites is quite unlikely. Oh, really? But it is weird, the idea that our fate mites are basically our own. Because, as you say, mostly they come from uh, through yeah. either child, vaginal childbirth or breastfeeding because you get face mites hanging around sometimes mm. in the genitals and the nipples. Mm. Um, and then they don't really change. Unless you are living like face to face with someone, like cheek to cheek with someone mm. for years on end, like my colony is totally different to your guys' colonies at this stage, amazing. I guess, right? It is yeah. a, that is amazing. So you'll have got some mites from your mother from breastfeeding perhaps or vaginally. Uh, and then they obviously won't live for your whole life. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll have children and their children will have children and their children will have children. And so it's a circle of life. Well, it's more like a straight line of life mm -hmm. uh, okay. because mm -hmm. by the time you die, if you live to an average human age, it will be 1200 generations from the start. Wow. Really? Okay, so the ones that are living as you die will be the great, 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 great 1200 times from the ones that you got from your mother. And that's the wow. equivalent in humans of when rope was invented and ovens were invented <laughs> and pottery were invented. So why wow. aren't they achieving more by the end of my life? Why, why haven't they got many laptops on my face that they're working on? And yeah. um, on the sex yeah. of yeah. Uh, face mites yeah. is quite interesting because their penis is on their back. Ah. Oh. So the male has to sort of get underneath the female to have sex right uh, but his sort of give her his, a piggyback like a piggyback yeah, yeah, yeah like a piggyback oh, wow. uh, and it's really interesting because this is a gene which has changed in the genome called the hox gene okay and if you you know the fact which all mammals have got nine neck bones yeah even a giraffe has got the same number of bones yeah. as a, a shrew or whatever uh -huh. that's because of the hox gene and the hox gene is the thing which tells you where all your body parts grow so that your arms are here and your legs are there and your neck's here and all that kind of stuff. And really very, very few animals, in fact, this is the first one I've ever seen where they change the Hox gene because it's really a hard thing to change because you need all your bits in the right place. So ev evolutionarily at some point their gene just changed and yeah. now their penis is on their back. And, <laughs> exactly. And are you, are, are you suggesting that if we harness this power, <laughs> we'll be able to have penises wherever we like? Um, we could, but then the problem would be that our other body parts would grow in weird places. Oh, okay. okay. So we've is got it to worth find a way, it? We've got to find a way of isolating it to yeah. give each other like a very sexy piggyback. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What changed for them <laughs> when their penis went on the Well, back? actually, the mites have been in the news in the last few weeks because they've yeah. checked the genome and they found that the genome has changed quite a lot. And the reason is because they are having sex, but they're having sex with their own cousins and brothers and sisters and stuff like that. Mm. And what they're finding is that they're changing in the way that I said, but also in the way that they're losing lots of their useful powers 
if you know what I mean. So yeah. things that could save them from ultraviolet, they might have had that in the past, but they're losing it because they don't need it because they have such a nice environment in your face. They're basically uh, becoming completely dependent on us. It's yeah. right. They're very clingy. It's like yeah. having a partner who suddenly <laughs> they ditch their whole friendship group. They can't even cook for themselves. And they're, they're developing a completely symbiotic They do have a penis on the back, though. So, so yeah. it is worth it. <laughs> I think the definition is they're currently classed as external parasites yeah. on us. But yeah. soon, if this process continues they will be classed as internal symbionts yeah so, and also yeah. they might be classed as extinct because if they lose all of these skills to stay alive yeah then it makes it much more difficult when they get passed on to the next generation they also have a seven clawed organ around their mouth which when they do eat your sebum yeah. they kind of latch their claws these claws around their mouth into you right um, mm. which is just, quite cool to imagine just when i was warming to them a little bit <laughs> <laughs> i love that it's called sebum Yet we have not seen Bum for Brilliant. all these years. Mm. Very good. Very good. How did I not wow. realise that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So mite, just mites in general. Oh, yeah. There are five million different species of mite, I believe. As in, everything's got one. Humans have their own. Um, at least one. At least one. Every kind of beetle will have its own mite. Mm -hmm. Every plant, soil, ocean, any mammal. There's, I have a favourite mite. Oh, um, great. Which is the Adactylidium. And oh, yeah. this is so amazing. It's life cycle. It's in like usually found in the Middle East, and they're basically born pregnant, uh, and they're born in order to um, die. And so, are we all? It's like human lifespan, but very, very fast. So basically, you've got the mother, right. and she only ever eats one meal in her whole life, and okay. it is always an egg. Um, <laughs> like hard boiled an or, egg yeah. I think it's poached and it's, the, it's specifically a poached egg of the thunderfly um, or I think in America you call them a thrip and okay. oh, so yeah, yeah it thrips. just eats one one thunderfly egg and then she this keeps her alive and she inside her has six to ten fertilized eggs ready mm, to go right. and they hatch inside her so all her offspring hatch inside her and it's always one male and then all the rest are females and then inside the mother, oh, all of her no. offspring, oh, you know what's no. coming. We all know what's coming. Um, obviously, the one brother shags all the sisters. Oh, the mucky pup. <laughs> impregnates them all. And then once he's got all the sisters pregnant, they eat their way out of the mother. Oh, oh. for heaven's sake. So the mother gets eaten from the inside. Not and then the, the kids are born, uh, already pregnant, obviously. Right. And then I guess they just start again. Being wow. eaten from the inside by the pregnant kids inside them. There are some animals which are just too different to us for us to have anything in common. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't get along. No. Yeah, nothing to talk about at all. Like if one of them gained human sentience, we just wouldn't like the other person. <laughs> if at the dinner party they start of their children bursting through their chest. <laughs> at least at the dinner party, all they're eating is an egg. What egg? Are you going to have that bread? Oh, great, yeah. I'll have that. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that a robot version of the Mayflower has just completed a human-free voyage from England to America. It went really well, except that it took three goes, had to be towed in manually, and first hit land 400 miles from where the original landed. <laughs> yeah. Still cool. Still cool. Top marks for effort. Totally disastrous. It was a disaster. Um, so this is this is a ship. It's a, it was a robot ship. Uh, it was built by IBM and an organization called Promare. I think that's how it's pronounced because okay. it's Mare like the sea. Um, and it was called the Mayflower Autonomous Ship. And it was piloted by AI technology. And apparently the technology worked 
perfectly. Mm. But the, the really funny thing, I just find it funny, the original Mayflower voyage in 1620 took 10 weeks to get mm. from England to the Americas. Yeah. And this was expected to take three weeks because they said this is so fast, it's so efficient, it's so so AI, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, and it's first set off in, I think, 2020, June 2021, and it eventually landed uh, in, I think, May or June 2022. It took about 60 weeks, basically. It took <laughs> many times longer than the original Mayflower. But okay. it had come back and started again at that point, back right? To be fair. Most yeah. of those 60 weeks, it was just waiting to try again. Right. <laughs> For a mechanic. Yeah. But then, in fairness, it was a research thing, right? Yes. And or in some ways, it's a way to prove that you can do this for research in yeah. the future. Yeah. So the idea is that a normal boat, like the Mayflower, yeah. most of the boats you're using to keep the people alive who are on the boat. So you need to keep food, you mm. need to give them shelter, you need all this yeah. kind of stuff. But if it's an AI boat, you don't need any of that stuff. All you need to do is get from A to B. And so yeah. you have loads of extra space to do loads of experiments yeah. and put loads of electronics in and loads of scanners and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And in that respect, I think it was something of a success they managed so. oh, to get yeah, yeah. quite a lot of data out of it oh they? yeah yeah exactly and the whole thing is what a cool idea as well like cool. yeah it took mm. a bit longer it landed in the wrong spot sure it went back three times <laughs> broke That's, down a lot broke down a lot caused nightmares <laughs> but the the but absolute it's got, mares absolute mares. Pro mares oh there we go what a nightmare eh? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's got a great website as well should yeah. say um, well it did crash three times and then <laughs> you ended up on bbc.co.uk yeah. but um, the boat itself had microphones on the hull with the part of the research capacity so it was listening for whales as it travelled and it mm, also had cool. a smart tongue uh, it had a tongue Ooh. on the bottom uh, that sounds like someone's <laughs> Tinder profile or I got a smart tongue no that's too rude isn't it's, it no it sounds more like a mite's penis it sort of migrated from the wrong side to sort of under keel it was recording the chemical composition of the ocean yeah so I think in that sense uh, it was in the right place right yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so travel. before we invented this though did yeah. there used to be sailors who would have to lay at the bottom of a boat <laughs> with their yeah. tongue out through yeah. a hole yeah. <laughs> still salty <laughs> we're not in the river yet <laughs> I think it seemed like the conclusion of this voyage was AI works quite well, but it turns out humans still don't know how to make boats. Right? Uh, I think that's boats, yeah. boats break down boats all the time. Hard. Yep. Boats really crap. They're always breaking. And um, this seems to be a problem with AI generally is that it can work very well, but if stuff goes wrong around it, it can't fix it. And it made me think next time I go on a ferry, I'll have newfound respect for the people I think are doing nothing. Because stuff, <laughs> <laughs> stuff just breaks all so the time. So you'll stop telling them. Who? Oh, <laughs> saying. Name and shame these people who you think are doing nothing. Are you talking about the people manning like the, the kiosk for <laughs> snacks? Because they're doing an important job, keeping the people Like health alive. and safety officers. They're they're crucial the health and safety guys the mechanics the guy, are necessary what about the guys like, in the like the car parking bit who yeah. are saying no bring it in left 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 left, left, left. <laughs> no not that far left <laughs> doing a really important reverse reverse oh it's in those are some of the most skilled people on the planet i would say do you know what fill a ferry the, agree, um, that bit of the ferry where you drive into yeah. is yeah. one of my favorite smells Oh, in the world. Oil it's the... like oily and petroly, very... and it smells like trucks. It's <gasps> yes. very yeah. but I really yeah. like that smell anyway. But it reminds me of holidays as a child. Yeah. Right. Stuff. As a result of that smell, the guys who are doing the car parking—they're as high as kites the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they're in an altered consciousness where they can see Tetris. That's the thing is, I thought I'd run over this guy, but it turned out he had his tongue through a hole in the floor. <laughs> 
Did you guys see the picture of the robot Mayflower when it was um, pulling in? Yeah. When it finally landed at Plymouth, which it did eventually. So it left from Uh, Plymouth as the original Mayflower did. It um, ended up going in Plymouth, England. Yeah. And then it uh, ended up accidentally somewhere in Canada, where Halifax. 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 Uh, But then it did get to Plymouth in the end. But it looks so pathetic because it pulls in next to the Mayflower 2 which is the exact replica of the Mayflower that was built in the 1950s, which I didn't know about. But it, that's obviously stunning. It's mm, got all this, yeah. stuff, like, you know, got all the rigging. It's, like, triple-masted. And then it's got this crappy... It's <laughs> like a catamaran, really, isn't it? It, it is. It's a trimaran yeah. um, outrigger, tiny thing. It looks like Thunderbird 3, I thought. Yeah, they, <laughs> they didn't make much of an effort, yeah. I think there was a suggestion before they made it that, oh, should we make another replica of the Mayflower and send it mm. across and then... They decided, no, let's try and do something for the next few centuries. You know, yeah, that's yeah. that's looking to the past if we did that. Had another replica. Exactly, so yeah. I think it is a really, it's a brilliant project. And, you know, well done everyone involved. It is really yeah, cool. Is the cool. Mayflower 2, when that originally went out in the 50s, um, they had problems as well on the way and they had to mm. divert. And during the diversion, they went across Bermuda and they almost sank in no. the Bermuda Ocean. Yeah. Really? So it could have been a Bermuda Triangle casualty, but they wow. didn't, and so it's not a good story. <laughs> How almost are we talking? Oh, almost? they just had, yeah, they had a bit like of trouble. They had to bucket out a bit of water? No, there was, there was a big storm, and so it was, you know, oh, wow. you could go. Oh, yes, there was, wasn't there? Yeah. That, that journey, it was in, uh, it was in 1957 they yeah. went, mm-hmm. and it was this uh, entrepreneur called Warwick Charlton. It was a great name, and he... Uh, was full of crazy schemes like this all through his life. And he wanted to thank the Americans for their help during the Second World War. So he said, let's build another version of the Mayflower and sail it across. And they did it in quite an authentic way. So they had one radio only. That was Mm. the only concession to uh, modernity, I guess. You know, they had no radar. They had no supplies dropped in. They wore pilgrim outfits on Sundays. <laughs> yeah. oh, on their just journey. on Sundays. Yeah, yeah just on really Sunday. Cool. Yeah, they didn't yeah. want to do the whole thing as a cosplay. Yeah. Um, and then after it was arrived, it was officially welcomed by Richard Nixon. Oh, it? it sounds so frustrating recreating like hand forging the individual nails with which they make it hand sewing the canvas sails because yeah. that's how they did it they must have thought at some points is this what the fuck is the point in this um and apparently according to the wikipedia page and this is taken from a pamphlet that's issued by the plymouth museum in massachusetts okay. which is where it is now when they built this replica in england they employed the skills of elderly traditional workmen so that they could build a vessel that reflected the original but how old now, were they <laughs> <laughs> you look like you're alive in 1620. <laughs> and do you know the one difference between the... It's not the one difference, there are others, but a difference between the Mayflower original and Mayflower 2? Oh, uh, toilet facilities. Oh, I that's a good one. Uh, yeah. Would you? I bet the toilets weren't that much more up to date. Okay. Electricity... Uh, no, although that I think there was a little bit of electricity on the okay. to, power, to power the radio, which I'm going to say is the <laughs> other. So there were lots of differences. Yep, okay. One of them was no women allowed on Mayflower 2. Oh, oh really? Yeah, Why? that feels a bit regressive. Well, um, no, I'm not, none allowed. No, it non- wasn't not allowed because the captain, who's a guy called Alan Villiers, bad luck. Um, maybe because they used to be thought that women on boats was bad luck. Wasn't yeah, it? sort of. He basically said that we won't be having any women because there's no place for this is 1957, but there's no place for glamour pusses. And he said, look, the reason glamour women pusses. came, pusses. the was, women was the original Mayflower absolutely stuffed with you know Raquel Welch in a fur bikini. <laughs> yeah, and that's why. It ended up so badly when they arrived at the other end. They were all shagged out. Um, 
No, he it? said the reason the Mayflower original yeah. works and they had women on board and it was fine yeah. um, was because that back in those days women were chattels, you know, you just owned them. Um, and they're not now. They talk back and you can't handle them. No, <laughs> no women. Wow, Alan. And so there were thousands of women who applied to um, help sail the boat over and Bloody they hell. were not able to go on the trip. Wow. But aside from that, it was a really great I found it amazing mission. on the original Mayflower that you had three women um, who were pregnant and knew that they would have a baby on the boat. Yeah. Mm. Which I think that's hardcore, isn't it? Because you know how long it's going to take. It's going to take you six months to get there. Yeah. You're less than six months pregnant or less than six months to go. Yeah. Would you do that? I don't know. Medical facilities were so shit. I think the further away you can get from them in those days, the better. (laughs) Middle of the sea is better than anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Because you might... Were any of the babies born on the new continent or were they all born on board uh there was one that was born when the ship was anchored i think in oh. cape cod so they called him like the first baby in north yeah, america yeah, yeah. Yeah. ignoring the people thousands and thousands yeah, of years for them on shore yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you th- you would have thought that they might have said to the mother if you just hold on a little bit longer this will be the first pilgrim baby born actually on exactly a bit like how we tried to have our cesarean on the 22nd (laughs) of the second 2022 yes like and when you say when you say we you mean you and your wife not you you and i i was looking you dead in the eye when i said that andy yeah no me and my wife yeah doesn't always work out does it i'm afraid no but then much like um i think you you know named your child partly after the day they were born um one of the children who was born on the mayflower was called oceania i think that's a cool name that's a brilliant name yeah Yeah. better than 14th of february that we called ours Um, the there was been another Mayflower controversy recently. Okay. In oh, 2019, yeah. yeah. In Devon, there was this group which announced that they were planning to build a 400th anniversary Mayflower, so yeah. 1620, 2020, uh, yeah. and then they were going to set it on fire. Oh yes. And yeah. this oh. prompted a row in America. People saying it's very disrespectful. Um, yeah, I can see why. Yeah, yeah, you know, but it was it wasn't intended as a disrespectful oh, right. move at all. It was this group in Devon who I want to go and meet. They're called the Great Torrington Cavaliers, <laughs> and every five years they build a big old structure and then set fire to it. Right, They've done it with yeah. loads of different things, and um, it's just their way of raising money for charity yeah i saw a photo of it because they did they did do it in the end they did light it up and yeah and it had knitted rats they had a ye oldie one-stop knob shop on board (laughs) which i'm pretty sure was an original feature of the mayflower (laughs) one shop knob shop one stop knob shop what's that mean i don't know what kind of knobs is it doorknobs i imagine doorknobs no it'll be all knobs because it's only one stop (laughs) so for all your knob needs I'd like to buy a packet of hard knobs, a door knob. And Piers Morgan there in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, they set it on fire. That was very cool. Another yeah. controversial one was the town of Harwich, which is where the Mayflower was originally constructed. Oh, yeah. So this is in Essex. They wanted to build a replica Mayflower and send it across again. So, so this was in 2009. They had a town meeting. They said, how do we commemorate this big 400th anniversary. Someone said, why don't we put up some bunting? (laughs) And then another person, a dentist called Tom Daly, said, why don't we rebuild 
the Mayflower and we send it across. And uh, so they all agreed to it and they started raising money for it. And sounds like it was quite a doomed project from the get go <laughs> because first off, they needed to build a shipyard, which they didn't have oh, in order no. to build the ship. <laughs> and so that took up a lot of funds. They raised millions and millions in order to get this done. They hired lots of interns to come and build the ship, but they had no training. So I think they went through hundreds and hundreds of these interns that just didn't know what they were doing. Right. Meanwhile, the guy who suggested putting up some buntings, just watching the whole thing going, I told them, I told them. <laughs> so what happened? Well, they just kept trying to, they, they were investing the money that they kept bringing in. They kept building right. up more money and people were doing things like um, sponsoring ship bolts so that they could have their own ship bolt on the ship and so on. Okay. And, and eventually they just ran out of money. And they so how, how much of the ship did they build? I think they did the keel and like the bow oh, and then that, that was oh, it. Yeah. And then so obviously funny. all these people that had these plans anyway for the big anniversary mm. couldn't do anything about it because COVID hit. And so all these plans got put into uh, oh, the back seat. So even if they had their ship, it might oh. not even even gone at that point oh that's quite good i feel like covid conveniently disappeared a lot of doomed projects you could just say well then covid you know also the fact it was a completely stupid idea (laughs) (laughs) okay it is time for fact number three that is james okay my fact this week is that when the first four minute miler roger bannister met his future wife moira she knew he was a runner but thought he'd run four miles in one minute (laughs) (laughs) many years later their grandson bragged to his friends that his grandfather could run one mile in under four seconds (laughs) this is like the dan process of telling anecdotes it's exaggerated beyond plausibility i should let you know i am his grandson (laughs) been holding that back for years um yeah so this is roger bannister and his very stupid wife apparently (laughs) (laughs) come on moira you've run before four miles in one minute that's pretty fast silly yeah uh so bannister was a medic as well as a runner wasn't he Mm. and um he became sir roger bannister as well because of a load of work that he did for the sports council so he wasn't just a fast runner he was an all-round guy he was i find it amazing that he wasn't he wasn't even a first runner after the age of i think it was 25 when he quit Mm. he just gave up he said he he wouldn't be taken seriously as a doctor he wanted to be a neurologist and that's exactly what he became yeah and the running he just completely left to one side he said that it was only a small section of his life and if he had to give one or the other up he would definitely have given running up and would have carried on being a medic because that was his main part of his life it's amazing yeah that makes it's quite um it's quite striking if you read any interview with roger bannister the, pretty much the first thing he'll say is I hate it how everyone bangs on about my running I don't even care about that all I want to be known for is being a doctor yeah um, no, he I should have just run a bit slower shouldn't he yeah that's, <laughs> you're right yeah <laughs> we wouldn't have been talking about it. just had a few seconds on yeah. and you'd be a complete footnote in history <laughs> yeah. so, nobody would care so this happened in Oxford at a place called Ifley Road mm-hmm. and uh, he so was so that's his four minute mile that's his four minute mile that he yeah that he ran and the track that he ran it on was actually built partially by him when he was at university he helped no lay that track down yeah he when he did it, it seems like a bit of a swiss <laughs> it yeah. does doesn't it it feels like something's going what on what do you think he's done made it very slippery or something yeah. of, what, made like, it downhill part prepare, of it prepare, yeah <laughs> a little spring yes <laughs> lobs him forward but um yeah so he he did this and it was an amazing thing that you can actually watch footage of online mm. which is pretty incredible and they talk a lot about his legs which are very 
kind of weirdly spindly um and the the sort of big strides that he takes are really interesting and you could see how knackered he is coming into the end <laughs> mm. as he does it in fact there's a whole crowd waiting for him as he comes right into the end and he basically collapses into someone's arms as if they knew that was going to happen they're waiting there to yeah. capture him and then they all stood around to hear had he done it and there was an official announcement and he said that the announcer went the time was three and then there was huge eruption because that's what <laughs> yeah. they needed it was to it hear McWhorter it was it was yeah. norris mcwater the founder uh, of the guinness world records along with yeah. hugh beaver and apparently uh, we're in a pantomime norris is a very panto name as well and he nearly didn't do it that morning yeah. he said he spent because he was training to be a doctor at the time i think he was a junior doctor or medical student and um he that morning was working and said it was really really windy and it was only at the last minute i think his friend about half an hour before half said an hour before. No, yeah you've you got to do it rog come on really and the wind went that was the other thing oh, he, yeah so wind, wind, wind went and he yeah. went let's do it but he yeah. did it in three minutes 59.4 seconds yeah. so we've really taken it to the well just under four in minute. actual fact i said he was the first four minute miler i should have said under four minute miles right yeah he didn't right. do it in exactly four minutes yeah um, but there was someone a few years later Derek Ibbotson who in a mile race at White City ran in exactly four minutes and zero seconds <laughs> wow nice. so he became the first person to do an exact four minute mile would that That's still fantastic. would that still have been as exciting to break the record or is the point that no. it has to be under four minutes yeah, it just had to be under four minutes. Okay, they, yeah. It was this invisible barrier that yeah. people thought that humans would never be able to get under. Yeah, right, uh, right. But yeah, we got under it. So getting four minutes, actually, if Ibbotson had done that four-minute mile, arguably he wouldn't have become famous because he hadn't beaten the four-minute yes, mile. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And it's pretty, again, when you watch the footage, I, I do wonder it's the 50s here that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. What what sort of accuracy are we talking I about know. with the stopwatch because yeah, it was yeah. so crowded it was well, what did they have it was a stopwatch presumably yeah i guess i would imagine it was a stopwatch yeah, yeah. i think that as well i was thinking Chris, we accept this so blindly it's just old <laughs> norris sitting there jamming his thumb <laughs> yeah doubting norris mcworth good call <laughs> uh, the first woman to run a five minute mile diane leather it yeah. was only 23 <laughs> days after bannister's record oh, wow. uh, but didn't get any of the Diane Leather is a very good name. Ran hell for leather. Okay. Yeah, that is good. Um, but in those days, basically, women weren't really supposed to run middle distance running. Um, it was thought to be deleterious to their health. Was long distance running allowed? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, they were only allowed to run over 100 miles or under 100 meters. <laughs> yeah, the IAF just banned them from running anything more than, um, I think, 800 meters. I they think didn't we might have for. said, did we say once in an earlier episode about there was like an 800 meter race in the 20s or something where all the women collapsed? Collapsed, yeah, we <laughs> really? talked about that. And so that put them off. Well, just because everyone collapses, they yeah. collapse in the way that everyone at the end of a long distance race, like Wobbly if you've legs. ever seen Mo Farrow or someone yeah. get to the end of a race, they fall onto the nearest person. Absolutely. Very often do. Yeah. And so these women kind of did, some of them. The the IAAF, we should say who they are, the International Amateur Athletics, Athletics Federation. Federation, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. they have, they seem to, have, they did exercise quite a lot of power at the time. Because this was still all, do the IAAF. So Bannister was running as an amateur. That mm. was part of the point of it, I think. Um, and so after he'd run the four minute mile, obviously incredibly famous, now one of the most famous people in the world, blah, blah, blah. He went to the USA on a kind of diplomatic you know jolly glad-handing celebrity trip Uh, he was sent by the foreign office um, but when he got there the IAAF said that if he was on sponsored TV that might risk his amateur status Mm. and Mm. therefore you know that would be in big trouble and I don't know if he'd lose a record or whatever and he was offered a trophy which was worth 178 pounds 
but when he was in America because they wanted to reward him somehow. Mm-hmm. And the IAAF said, absolutely not. You can accept no gifts worth more than £12 as a result of this. Oh, cool. yeah. Wow. Be- be- becoming the most famous. It was a big yeah. deal. Like, you couldn't even have expenses to get to places. Really? Yeah, and that, maybe a bit earlier that, but yeah, the amateurism was really important. Yeah. That was why yeah. most of the people who were quite successful runners back in the 50s were quite wealthy white men well, um, exactly, in Western yeah. countries because <laughs> you couldn't really afford to do anything like that. That's true. And person. actually, there is a thought that there were people who were running sub four minute miles before him, but they weren't Oxford graduates mm. who yeah. had all the newspapers and everything like that. So, for instance, there's a guy called James Parrott, who's a costermonger, uh, and he supposedly ran a mile in under four minutes in 1770. And there was in 1796 someone called Weller who did the same. Mm. Uh, and the reason that we think it might be true is because they were bets. So it was like this costermonger said to his mate, I bet you. 10 pounds that I can run under four minute mile and the other person paid up we know that they paid mm. up so whether they did or not certainly the person they did the bet with you know yeah. was happy they had, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't they know may- though if we're not trusting Norris McWhirter the stopwatch <laughs> I don't know if I'm trusting whatever grandfather <laughs> clock they timed it but by but I'm so glad we're on these guys because I think they're, they're really interesting claims I love the James Parrott one mm. and there was also soon after him in 1787 there was a runner called Powell who wagered a thousand guineas which is a lot of money. Today, that's, is ne- it? Today, that's nearly £800,000. Wow. That's a lot. That he could uh, manage a four-minute mile run. And um, he claimed to have done it in four minutes 03 when he did this time trial. It was near Hampton Court in London. And it was five days before Christmas. And the really interesting detail is that he was naked at the time. <laughs> most serious runners would have been naked when they In the 1700s. Runs. It was kind of a harking back to ancient Greek yeah. athletic yeah. culture, but still. Really? And so what happened? Did he lose the I money? I actually don't know if he lost or won the money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I actually apparently didn't decide it was worth writing down whether or not he managed. <laughs> <laughs> I did a similar thing. I was, The current record for what the um, four-minute mile can be run in. Uh, I've got all the other details. Got the guy's name. Got you know, Just haven't written down what time he did it in. So what does anyone know the current? It's about 3.50. It's about 3.50. Yes, Al uh, I don't know how much it's it was. Not I think it would be less than that, wouldn't it? I think it's three, 340 something. 340. I know what he beat uh, yeah. Bannister by in metres. As in, if the two of them were racing against each other, how much of a lead he had on him. That's so weird for you to have collected that piece of information. <laughs> okay, well, you, tell us, we can work that out. Yeah, try and work it out. How many metres was it? Um, he beat him by 100 metres. He would have crossed the line. Okay, well, if you think 10 seconds for a really fast runner to run 100 metres, they would have done it in 15 seconds, something like that. So if you take that off four minutes, then that's... Yeah, you know, 345. You've made it a bit complicated by mixing up meters and miles, obviously, but <laughs> we can work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just at home, do the calculation yourself. Or just Google um, HML Garouge <laughs> yeah. and find out. 1999 it was. It seems strange that we haven't beaten the world record yeah. since yeah. then. Yeah, century. Um, since 1999 a century this century oh this century (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah um the reason according to peter wayand who is uh, a southern methodist university professor of applied physiology and biomechanics he reckons that the reason it hasn't been beaten is because the next year we started testing for epo uh which Mm. is a banned steroid um which kind of gives you what year was that sorry 99 uh and so the Olympics knew that people were taking EPO, but they didn't have a way of testing for it until a year later. And El Grouge, I should say, has denied that he's ever taken any drugs, and he is quite vocal in the anti-drugs kind right. of campaign in, in sports. So no, because all the other ones go, "Yep, I was yeah. definitely on it." <laughs> <laughs> um, but the really interesting thing I think about um, El Grouge is that he was going to be a football goalkeeper. 
and okay. as a kid he was really really good uh, but his mum stopped him from doing it because he would dive around in the mud and all of his clothes would get really dirty and so she said oh well you know I have to clean them all the time can you not do something that's a bit less dirty and he went okay I'll be a runner instead wow. and he became the best really? miler ever yeah. wow. wow do you know who came up with the first steroid test for athletes um, is it someone we'll have heard of Norris is it Norris yeah David, you're David, really close David Hockney. oh Hugh oh. Beaver no it um, was uh, Bannister wasn't it was it? Bannister oh yeah it was Bannister who developed the first steroid test this was in 1973 because he was big into you know calling out people who took steroids right. in sports um, and Gosh. other stuff he did other medical stuff he did since that's all he wants us to know about him yes is um, he was into self-experimenting he was one of those oh, doctors really? okay yep On so steroids <laughs> <laughs> yeah later at the age of Actually, 45 he, he ran out two minutes <laughs> he um not steroids with pyrogens actually okay. which are less fun they are chemicals that induce fever so he wanted to study fever so he injected himself with pyrogens and then he sat naked in a hot chamber for six hours um which spiked his temperature to very dangerous levels and turned him dark green wow what That's... green yeah, really do actually... we believe that is Gosh. that not the story of the incredible hulk <laughs> <laughs> and he said i wouldn't perhaps Rock recommend bruce banner it. stir <gasps> oh my oh, god we blow this shit wide open <laughs> so long since we blew something wide open I'm so glad about that uh, wow uh, yeah you'll impressive. see in a lot of his papers he'll refer to the study participant RB um, oh. and oh, it's always him so, obviously um, he, you mentioned earlier Anna that he was quite tricky to interview sometimes because obviously he had these two very different aspects of his life mm. so there was an interview by the guardian i think in the early 2000s so he was he was getting on them but i just wanted to read you some of the yeah go for so, it okay he he was asked a few questions then he said right is there anything else you want to know and the interviewer said well i'll be honest sir yes what's your favorite biscuit oh i don't answer questions about biscuits <laughs> why? why not oh no 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 i'm not into biscuits <laughs> <laughs> now, what is he hiding? That's yeah, the question. Yeah. The interview says everybody likes a nice biscuit. He says, "Well, I'm not. I'm not sure what the purpose of that aspect of the interview is. It's quirky, game showy, odd." Fair <laughs> 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 uh, play to the Guardian interviewer. He perseveres. Uh -huh. <laughs> Cheese or chocolate? No, no, no. <laughs> All right, I think you've got more than enough there. What about pie fillings, steak and kidney, or chicken and mushroom? Bannister just says, thank you so much. All the best. <laughs> ends the interview. That's incredible. What year is this? I think about 2004 it was. Okay. Oh good. I'm just really... wondering, is this like the era of like, you know, Dennis Penis and Ali G and everyone's been primed <laughs> uh, not to answer stupid I questions? Think you just hated us. I think yeah. that's just he yeah. thinks pointless question from a journalist. And that journalist, I can really imagine doing what that journalist has done, which is not be able to remember anything else that you might have asked. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. having to keep going on. Or just quickly looking at, you know, it's going, oh, fuck, what's your favourite sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> rather no that's not gonna work either have you ever no <laughs> well amazing. i was i didn't want to say to you guys bizarrely my brother um helped him write his last autobiography a few years ago which came out um i think oh, it's called so twin cool. somethings um and it, he said he was extremely nice and uh, and actually particularly his wife my brother absolutely loved moira and she'd always bring them um warm beer and sort of cold cuts for lunch so. any um Biscuits. Well, I read broad. through that book and there was no mention of Garibaldi. So <laughs> we Every time she brought biscuits in, he flipped the table. <laughs> I, I, I saw him once at a the QI, QI used to have a building in Oxford and he came to one of the parties in he? QI. He just ran in, had a wow. drink, ran out. Yeah, again. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like a biscuit? No! <laughs> 
Yeah, but it was kind of like, I don't know, in a weird way, because he's someone who's a slightly obscure famous person. It was sort of like uh-huh. spotting, you know, like a Bigfoot. It was just like, wow, like, look, a sighting of Bannister. Quite Do you think he, I mean, he didn't like it, but let's say he did like it. Would you walk around, even in your 80s, wearing your shorts and your, like... <laughs> tank top maybe, thing. Yeah, tank top thing. <laughs> Carrying your record. What did he get? Medal? Oh, he was, must have got a medal. He was the year before you get the Guinness World Records. Yeah. 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 Oh, so he didn't even have the... <laughs> Missed it by a oh. year. No because his record was then broken, wasn't it? 46 days later yeah. by yeah, John really Landy, the Aussie. And they ended up having an amazing run together, uh, which was part of a race which was known as the Miracle Mile Race. Uh, it had a few different names. Um, and they they went up against each other. I mean, how exciting. Two yeah. guys who had the records trying to see who could beat them. I suppose that does happen in pretty much every <laughs> race meeting in the world. I su- yeah, that's uh, that's true because you're always trying to break a record. I guess yeah. this was the Very two. Very Mo Farrow just racing a bunch of primary school children on sports day. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? You should try racing other good runners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he, I think Bannister said his race against Landy was the thing he w- was really proudest of because oh, really? it was watched by 40 million people yeah. when it was in Vancouver oh, the, and listened by 100 million on the radio apparently listened to by 100 million bizarrely apparently. boring just bang 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 yeah. is that what yeah, you hear that's... when you listen to a race uh, commentary <laughs> commentary would probably be commentary. yeah commentary, it's not a yeah. good commentator if that's what they're saying the yeah. whole time bang 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 bang, bang, bang. <laughs> so in that race they were both you know, neck for neck the entire time, and Bannister's behind him. And <laughs> that's not uh, what neck for neck. Yeah, means. so he was kind of like putting his neck out and touching <laughs> the back of it. Neck and neck, I think. Yeah. Not neck for neck. No. I, a I've neck for a neck, an eye for an eye. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the Bible, yeah. I think they were neck and neck. I'm sorry to. No, no, that's fine. I, I, I would they not make a good commentator either. Anyway, they were neck <laughs> bang, 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 bang. Yep, they're neck for neck. <laughs> they were neck and neck in front of one in front of the other, yeah. <laughs> So Bannister's right behind him and and he's covered up and on the final corner, Landy looks over left on his shoulder and as he looks over left, Bannister takes over on the right and that was the famous moment where... Did he tap him on the shoulder before he did it? (laughs) (laughs) I want to report a ghost on the running track. I think we need to redo it. (laughs) So that that was the big moment and this moment has been... Then he stole his nose. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then his thumb came off and it was like whoa <laughs> anyway the prize money that Landy got was retrieved from behind his ear actually so <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number four, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that when the movie Ulysses was released in New Zealand in 1967, censors were so worried about it that men and women weren't allowed to watch it at the same time. So <laughs> they, they literally had to be placed in different cinemas if they wanted to go and see it. Um, and that continued on for years. So there was a showing of it at a university in New Zealand in 1972. And even then, they still had, they allowed men and women in the same room, but they had to sit on either side of the cinema. Okay, so is it because it's so sexy? It's sexy, it's sweary, it's, uh, it was just debauched city. It was... You see, because I can see if it's sexy that you don't want men and women sat next to each other, mm. yeah. right? Because they might have sex with each other. They might, just yeah. straight like that. Yeah. Know. That's what happened when Wait, I watched <laughs> Stop on My Mum on the And you weren't on your own to the cinema, didn't you? So that poor person next to you. <laughs> uh, I could see halfway through that sentence that was going nowhere. Um, but then, 
like if it was a sweary part of it, it doesn't make sense if they're in the same room, right? No, exactly. No, it was a mixture. It was a mixture okay. of the sexiness and of the swearing. And in the in the room, there was a rope that went down the center of the audience. And so you had the men and women still, there was one row, like one line down the center where Gosh. men and women could have had sex. Uh, <laughs> what, but, with a rope? Well, a just like they, the rope was sort of, there was no aisle between them. They were literally oh, in a see. seat next to someone. I yeah. So you, if there's just a piece of rope in between you and a person, you can still have sex with them. It's a pretty, it's a pretty weak barrier to ardor, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I got this fact by the way from a brilliant book called *The Land Before Avocado*, and it's by a guy called Richard Glover, who oh, I've yeah. met in Australia when we were on tour there. Oh. He actually, I went on his radio show, so he's a big journalist and broadcaster. He's written a bunch of books, and What's he listens the, to um, fish. title referring to. Um, well, avocado is absolutely abundant in Australia as a oh, breakfast yeah. uh, oh, yeah, item, yeah. and he's That's talking about the old Australia. So, avocado ah. is sort of the new world of Australia. Australia. Got it. And That's the book clever. is all about all the olden days and how things used to be. And Ulysses was actually banned in Australia, which is where it comes up, uh, the, the book, as well as the movie. Uh, so this is James Joyce's Ulysses, <laughs> I is, should say. Yeah, James Joyce's Ulysses. <laughs> you haven't read the book, now don't see the film. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he, he mentions that it was allowed in New Zealand, but then they had the segregation thing between the men and the Very women. Yeah. And then you said that it was the film as well, wasn't it? That was yeah. banned in Australia and South Africa, I think. And Quite a lot of places. It was yeah. banned, banned in Ireland. Yeah. 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 The ban yeah. in Ireland was only lifted in the year 2000. Yeah. That is Amazing. a long ban. And I think Ireland's Justice Secretary sent his secretary to go and see the movie yeah. and reported back that if this film was allowed, it would discredit the Irish government. So it can't be, it can't be permitted. Mm. Yeah. It was the first film shown in Britain to feature the F word. Ooh. Mm. Oh, spicy. Yeah. It's really interesting. It was made by a guy called Joseph Strick, and he was a massive fan of the book. So his initial pitch for making the movie was he wanted to do it verbatim. So it was going to be 18 hours long. He wanted every bit of dialogue <laughs> that was in the book used. Got talked out of it, so it eventually ended up being two hours long. Um, but then when it came out, he was very angry about the response of all these bannings and the way that people were treating the film. And there was one famous incident where they showed the movie in Cannes at the film festival mm. and this was at the 1967 one it had French titles along the bottom and during the film where it got to a particularly spicy bit um, they had using their hands scribbled out the translation <laughs> in French subtitle of what was being said so Strick saw this thought you're messing with my movie yeah. ran up ran to the projection booth where he was met by the committee of the film festival who knew that he'd rush in there um, and then he was forcibly ejected according to him he said he was pushed down the steps and suffered a broken foot and so he re- he withdrew the film from Cannes wow. altogether. The reason that he loved the book is that his father had smuggled a copy into America um, because it was illegal in lots of countries uh, at the start of the 20th century. And his father smuggled this copy into America and would just keep it in the house and leave it on the table so that whenever anyone came around, they would say, oh, that's that dirty book isn't it like Ulysses and then oh, yeah. like even though no one had read it they would still argue about it about censorship and stuff like yeah. that yeah well it was really so it's I think 1920 uh, the very early 20s it was published 23 I think mm-hmm. um, and it was you know it's printed I think it was because he wrote it in 18 didn't he and it was okay. serialised but maybe it was published in Britain in 23 do you mean well 500 copies were burnt at Folkestone in 1923 <laughs> so I think that was an attempt to import it and uh, it, it was published well. in France in 1922 ah, okay. uh, that was in Paris by an American woman called Sylvia Beach yeah uh, she opened a shop and she had these copies of Ulysses that she managed to get and she sold them for 10 times 
times more than any other book in the shop because she knew that everyone would want to get their hands on this book. Um, but still they managed to get them. Still they paid for them. Mm. And she removed the copy from the store window because she thought that people would start throwing bricks in her wow. store and oh, stuff wow. like that. Yeah. Still none of the Put buyers it. ever read it. I think we can guarantee <laughs> all of these places, oh, all wow. of these people. Beach was really brave. So the book was sued in New York by the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Mm. And it was convicted for being obscene. They were and fun people. Yeah. <laughs> but then after that, Beach published it in Paris. And part of the reason it was controversial was when it was printed in extract in the USA, even the printers themselves said, this is outrageous. We're not working on this. And then when she was in Paris, French printers were obviously harder to offend with English filth. Because they don't understand the language that they're printing in. So and that they're French, it. like mm. the, you know, yeah. Madame yeah. Bovary. Or, wave it you know. through, wave it through. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're used to this sort of. Madame uh, Bovary's smut. not that sexy. Are you There's joking? Some shit in a carriage. Come on, it's, it's pre- much more subtle than what Ulysses sounds it's like. Pretty raunchy stuff, Madame Bovary. Okay. Well, it, and this bar still, is quite different. To yeah, you. I was going to say. I'm still lobbying to ban Madame Bovary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so Nausicaa was the chapter in America that was seen <clears throat> from Ulysses. So they were publishing these ex- extracts, and um, in the chapter that suddenly raised the concern, Leopold Bloom, one of the lead characters of the book Ulysses, the, the lead, I think the lead, the, the, main, yeah. the main, the main <laughs> He's guy. He's not sharing it with many people. <laughs> Maybe Molly. Um, that's, yeah, I was thinking. Volley. Um, he so it's a scene in this chapter where he's masturbating on a beach um, while gazing at a 17 year old girl called Gertie McDowell and that's what they took exception to they have scenes like that in Madame Bovary it's not quite that much I is it it's been a while or, since or in it. fact another scene and this is just saving anyone <laughs> the trouble of actually reading it because we're just telling you the couple of fun bits uh, <laughs> so you don't have to bother but apparently there's one scene in a I haven't read it there's one scene in a Dublin brothel where Leopold Bloom transforms into a woman and then gives birth to Octoplets um, before the brothel madame, who then turns into a man and starts auctioning off Bloom's like prostitution services and uh, demonstrates. So Bloom's now a woman with a vagina. Right. And so the brothel madame demonstrates how good a prostitute that he'd make by shoving her arm up his vagina. Yeah. Okay. Also doesn't happen. <laughs> oh, shoves her arm up the vagina and then shoves it into the bidder's face to be like, look, how good is that? Um, there's another line. I actually started reading Ulysses at the start of the year when my daughter was born and I had a lot of time in the middle of the night sat there <clears> with nothing else to do. <clears throat> uh, and I got through quite, no, not much of it, but then I started listening to the audiobook, the RTE oh. version, which actually I got through most of. I didn't get through to the end. Um, and it gets really racy at the end, so I'm a bit gutted <laughs> that I haven't got there yet. <laughs> but anyway, there was this line, and I did tweet this at the time, which is, Haynes helped himself and snapped the case too. He put it back in his side pocket and took from his waistcoat pocket a nickel tinderbox, sprang it open too, and having lit his cigarette, held the flaming spunk towards Stephen in the shell of his hands. Hmm. What? And so that's... Sorry, when did the spunk come in before that moment? <laughs> well, so the reason is different... that the word spunk just doesn't mean what it means today. Oh, really? It meant like a little oh. bit of flame or a little bit of, you know, if yeah. you light a match, a little bit of flame sort of flies away. That used to be called a spunk. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Flaming ah. spunk. <laughs> I guess it so is a, a sort of flyaway thing. It flies off and away. Yeah. I'm sure there's some sense. etymological reason. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> Do you know that um, the day Ulysses was set, um, which is famously one day, June the 16th, 1904, mm. is the day that James Joyce first got a handjob from his wife? Is it? Yeah. Bloom's Day. It's to commemorate that day. Exactly. Really? Is it, so that's, that's why it's to commemorate. Yeah, yeah he set it the then. Point. It was their first date. 
That's is it to right. commemorate the first day? Is it to commemorate the hand job? Is there a difference? Is it, I don't know. But also, uh, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes married on that day. Did they? In commemoration of Bloomsday, not the handjob. Um, <laughs> it was more about that when the day was set. Yeah. I wow. wonder if she gave him a handjob in proper commemoration. You may now kiss the bride <laughs> and you may now... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, the person who banned the book in the UK, yeah, this mm. was in 1922... Um, it was the government that banned it, but the person whose idea it was was a guy called Sir Archibald Bodkin, uh, and he issued an official opinion saying that it was a filthy buck and it should not be allowed to be imported into the country, and the government agreed. Uh, and I was reading about Sir Archibald Bodkin. Apparently, he was a man of unwavering Victorian sensibilities. Uh, this is according to an author, Kevin Birmingham, who was writing about Ulysses. And he said, on the rare occasions that he told a bawdy joke, he drained away the humour by delivering the punchline with a disapproving glare. <laughs> Why are you looking at me, James? I don't know, I don't know what you're trying to say here. I love That's that. That's so funny. So funny. I'd love to see his live at the Apollo set. <laughs> Furious when the audience laughs. <laughs> Shut up. Just on films that are banned. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the Wikipedia for wh- which films are banned where is great. So, because it, it's, it's quite nationally specific mm. in lots of cases. So, um, Cuba, for example, oh, yeah. has banned the films Red Zone Cuba, uh, Cuba Crossing, Red Dawn, Cuban Love. Any movie with Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> <laughs> um, without Havana. And finally, Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> ah. That's okay, that's yep. understandable. There's one film called Titanic from 1943. It's a 1943 Titanic, not the original. Yeah. Um, which was banned by the Nazi government, despite mm. the fact that it had been made by the Nazi propaganda department. I, oh, I remember that, that one. Yeah. 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 And, Why um, was it like a practice run to check how well they banned stuff? I think Goebbels decided it would weaken morale because it, there was lots of bombing happening in Germany at the time and Goebbels decided that because this film featured a lot of deaths on the Titanic that it would weaken morale in Germany. So there were some test screenings outside Germany but it was never shown in Germany. It was also then obviously banned by the Allies because it was Nazi propaganda. Mm. So there was basically nowhere this film was allowed to be shown. Mm. Yeah. Um, do you guys know the film Too Cool for Christmas? No. No. <laughs> Not familiar with that. Do you know the film... A very cool Christmas. No. <laughs> right. Well, um, they're both the same film. They're about a girl who wants to go skiing instead of spending Christmas with her parents. But in one of them, in A Very Cool Christmas, the girl's parents are a female and male heterosexual couple. Mm-hmm. And in Too Cool for Christmas, her parents are two male gay fathers. Right. Okay. And ah. it's exactly the same. Is the films a- are exactly the same ah. as each other. Ah. They just refilmed every single That's scene involving amazing. the parents, which I imagine is quite a wow. lot. And they just show them in different parts of America or, or different parts of the world. <laughs> that was like- pretty much exactly it. It was for America. It was 2004. And it's this director <laughs> who uh, is called Sam Irvin, who's a gay director who wanted to do the plot line about the gay dads Mm, but couldn't get the budget for the LGBTQ station that he wanted to put it on so he also sold it to Lifetime TV (laughs) a rather traditionalist TV station (laughs) so he also got a mum I want to go to like a traditional orthodox American family (laughs) and show them the first film the one with the heterosexual couple and then show them the other one (laughs) and say you know what they've done this for all the films (laughs) 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 It's a secret archive of every film in the world. (laughs) 
Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, James at James Harkin, and Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account at No Such Thing or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. Check it out. All the previous episodes are up there, as well as links to any upcoming live shows that we might be doing. Our merch is up there as well. Uh, but most excitingly of all is the new thing that you'll find up there, which is a link to Club Fish. Club Fish is our new subscription service. It's a membership club whereby you can get access to ad-free episodes. You can get all sorts of bonus content that we're going to be popping up there. Or you can just, you know, support the podcast. Uh, You might just want to do that. You've been thinking of doing that for a while. This is your way to do it. So whatever your reason for joining Club Fish, we would love to see you there. We hope you enjoy all the behind the scenes stuff that we're going to be chucking up there too. Um, But hey, listen, if you can't join Club Fish, don't worry. You don't need to because this podcast isn't going anywhere. We are not going behind a paywall. This will stay a free weekly podcast for the rest of its days. So the best way you could support us if you don't want to do Clubfish is simply just keep listening. Just keep bringing your ears to the party and maybe tell your friends about it too. We want to be spreading these facts to as many people as possible. And the only way we do that is by having listeners like you tell your friends about it. We will be back again next week with a very special guest. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.